2: And welcome to MindShifters Radio and today is <clears throat> Thursday, May the 25th, 2023 and Dr. Tim's show is pre-recorded uh, in interview with Guy Finley. and I am on my way back to doctors to get another IV of fluid. <clears throat> so Our hour will be pre-recorded as well. Hope you've enjoyed the show. Thank
0: you. This is MindShifters Radio. I'm your host for the first hour, Tim Hayes. And um, we're uh, grateful to have Guy Finley joining us today. In our MindShifters Radio show, we promote, we teach, and we support people in using very practical tools for improving the quality of their lives. And it's because our, our only guest for today, Guy Finley, talks so much about how there is nothing more practical than true spirituality that it's a great honor to welcome Guy. Guy Finley is an internationally renowned spiritual teacher and the best-selling self-realization author. His books and audio programs have sold over 2 million copies worldwide in 26 languages. His seminal work, The Secret of Letting Go, is considered a spiritual classic. Guy is the founder and director of Life of Learning Foundation, based in Merlin, Oregon, and as well as being the host of the Life of Learning Foundation's Wisdom School, which is an online self-study program for personal self-discovery. His new book, Relationship Magic, Waking Up Together, is a practical guide that provides couples with the unique, enlightened tools to transform their relationships from mundane to magical. For more information, we encourage you to visit guyfinley.org or relationshipmagicbook, all one word, relationshipmagicbook.com. And it's a great honor for me to have Guy with us because as I said, he he understands the same kinds of tools and principles behind the tools that we teach in the MindShifter support groups and on MindShifter Radio, and the tools that Dr. Michael Rice makes available on his website, whyagain.org. And beyond that, Guy brings a delightful writer's, artist's eye, a storyteller's voice to these deep truths. So, please, Guy, welcome. Thank you for being here.
2: Uh, you're very welcome, Tim. I'm glad to have the time with you.
0: I, I would like to take a moment and let you save your voice a little and read for our audience a little bit of why I say you have the artist's eye and the storyteller's voice. From your <laughs> I'm book, all ears. <laughs> from your book, it says, All of our relationships are a kind of mirror. Standing before the mirror of our relationships, a ceaseless reflection of that relationship as it unfolds, we are given to see something about who we are in that moment. In this way, each relationship serves to reveal to us something we may not yet have realized as being true about our present nature. In other words, whenever I'm around you, there's the prospect of being introduced to a me, parts of myself, that I have not yet met. Here's an example of this powerful idea and how it works its magic in us. Maybe we're on a nature hike. When we round a bend, suddenly finding ourselves standing at the foot of a towering waterfall, it's majestic. A delicate mist covers everything catching the sunlight, creating a million tiny prisms of colored light. There's never been such a moment for us because we have never been who we are in that same instant. In such moments, we are filled with an incomparable sensation that is one and the same as meeting a whole new level of our being. Or perhaps we look up to see an unending night sky. And in our relationship with that dark expanse, we experience the feeling of something deep and vast within us. We sense the presence of something eternal. In that moment, we are given a glimpse of something we would never see otherwise. The timelessness we feel stirring in us has always lived in us, much as in the fairy tale, sleeping beauty is awakened from her deep sleep by the kiss of Prince Charming, so can all of our relationships with everyone, with anyone, serve to stir us awake, not only that we might experience some deeper, truer sense of self, but So that through that same awakening, we may touch and be touched by a higher order of love that can be realized in no other way. Can this man write or what? So that's why we encourage people to check out your book, Guy. We have people on the call who are studies students of this kind of work and anxious to hear more about your book and why you wrote it and how you got to this place
2: <clears throat> uh, thank you Tim that was, I, I enjoyed listening to you read the read the book look we are all of us I like to say sort of <clears throat> Paraphrase. I guess it was something in the Quran uh, Birds fly, fish swim Men pray uh, We are as human beings Created to uh, realize in our lifetime A relationship with the world around us All of the people, all of the circumstances Every last touch We are created to realize that within us is a, a a possibility that thought will never touch we know because of the fine example that you read not because it's mine but it's something all of us can relate to we know without taking thought that those moments are supernal they're sublime I, I I'm asleep in one respect until something stirs me, and in the moment of that stirring, I'm awakened to an aspect of my own consciousness that without that moment, without that mirror, I don't know, which means that in that same moment, and this is a very important idea, what I realize while I've never realized it before has always lived within me which means that my my being the potential of my consciousness already contains with it within it everything that I will ever experience it's it's profound if we can wrap our mind around it there is no experience that we will ever have that isn't already in our consciousness. That means that the task isn't to go out and create experience so as to perpetually realize, but rather to start recognizing that relationships in this life, whether they're just the relationship of looking out the window, as I am right now at the morning break in southern Oregon on the mountain, or it's the relationship of talking with someone that we love. Those moments are revelations. And every revelation, if we understand it properly, means something that we have never seen or met before in ourselves is suddenly brought up into our awareness. In that moment, and that's key to the book and everything else that I write and teach about, we have a a, a choice. And the choice is What do I do with that revelation? For instance, when I'm with my wife, who I've been with for nearly 40 years, there are certain things about her that uh, I know before she starts talking that what she's going to say, because I can see a certain corner of her mouth turn up, uh, a twinkle in her eye, and I know she's going to start talking about something she loves. And I already feel that, that, that happiness because in that moment, My wife is stirring in me a corresponding part that finds contentment with what she manifests. That's a wonderful relationship. But in that moment where I love the revelation of that part of myself that my wife awakens me to, in that same moment, what if her little mouth turns down? What if she has a a look in her eye that says, I need to talk to you about something serious? In that same moment, it's a revelation. The task is, what do I do with that revelation? Because one, I embrace wildly for being something that shows me something about myself I like to see. And the other, I reject. And not because my wife is to be blamed for her attitude, but because it's stirring in me something that parts of me do not want to know about. So when I reject the revelation, It's the same as rejecting self-realization, and that's to the point of it. Relationships are the mechanism, if you want, through which a human being becomes self-realized, but only when they understand the axiom. When the student is ready, the teacher appears. Well, that means every shape and form of the teacher, not just the one that we like.
0: Wonderful. It's it's the the idea that you're laying out opens the possibility that I can mm-hmm. be okay with whatever unfolds, as long as I use it as a teaching moment.
2: Yes. Look, in, in in one respect, we we say things like "I'm going to use it as a teaching moment," because our assumption is whether we admit to it or not, is that somehow the world is revolving around outside of me and that here come these select moments and I should be open to them and receive the lesson. And that is the truth at one level, Tim. But the truth is the world isn't revolving around me, outside of me. The world is inside of me. There is no self without relationship. I I beg everybody to think about it for a moment. That's part of the old koan from Buddha's work. You know, if a tree drops a branch in the woods and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? What he was alluding to is the idea that everything in existence, everything that does exist, exists because of a mutual dependency and without something to Be aware of a moment. There is no moment, which means that the moment we're aware of is unfolding in our own consciousness. So the world I see is not outside of me. That's the biggest thing, Tim. That's the secret of gradually letting relationships free us, fulfill us, perfect us. We think the world we see is outside of us. It's the nature of our nature. Our senses divide us up into the things we see and feel and the self that thinks it feels and sees them. But the truth is, it's not that way at all. The world we see is not outside of us. And when we can begin to understand that, which we've just been proving, if I look up at that night sky and I feel the depth and breadth of an endless ocean of stars, I I look out the window and here come the girls uh, about eight or nine deer that I've hand raised over 12 years. Why do I want to go outside every single morning to meet the girls? Because when I'm with them, the, the union of their being and the consciousness in me that is revealed through that in- integration produces a revelation of something that is already inside of me. So though the girls are outside. The night sky seems to be outside. Where is my experience of it and isn't my experience of it my consciousness of it? If we understood that, we would stop blaming people, Tim. We would, we would realize that there are parts of us that are hurt, things that have remained concealed, carried through time because we didn't understand our relationship to life but we would gradually take every last one of these moments and allow the moment to do what it's intended to do, which is to introduce us to ourselves so that we have the overall, the whole experience of the moment instead of the one that this lower self selects to prove that it's right or wrong or someone else needs to change.
0: Wonderful. Wonderful. I have the, um, I have a, a, a highlight from your book that says, "As long as we believe that anyone else is responsible for our sense of well-being, we will feel it's our right to keep spurring them on until they get it right." Exactly. And this reminds me <clears throat> of Dr. Rice's definition of codependence. It says, "Whenever I think or speak." as though someone else is responsible for what I'm feeling, what I'm actually creating with my own thought, I have just created a codependent relationship. That's
2: correct. Now, the only thing I would add to that is that we need to understand, and this is to the heart of my book, that it isn't I who creates a codependent relationship. That'd be like saying it's I who jumps into fire. It's I who agrees to to become an addict. There is a level of consciousness that we are presently living in and from, and it is asleep. It does not understand why it exists. It only has for its reason for existing the identity that is perpetuated through the illusion of this separation. So that if I become in a relationship that creates codependency and all of us have and probably still are to some extent in a relationship like that it means because i didn't know what i was doing i don't know what i'm doing you know it's so uh, how do you say it's an amazing thing you talk to people all the time everybody says they want to learn Everybody says they want to be realized. They want to grow. But the moment that comes along, that indicates something's going on. Here's an example. I just posted this on Instagram. Imagine a, an aspirant comes to see his teacher and says, "Teacher, I, 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 I you know what? I've been, I'm as thick as a brick. I know I'm, I'm, I want to wake up. I, I, I'll do anything. I mean anything. I've come to that point." Please tell me, what, I'm, what must I do to go beyond the point I'm at? To which the teacher turns to the student and says, Are you sure you want the answer? Well, of course I do. I wouldn't have come if I didn't. teacher says, All right. The problem is, you see, that virtually every moment, in one way or another, something in you is denying reality. To which point the student says, I do not deny reality. Now, does does the student know what he's saying when he summarily resists something that (laughs) challenges the image that he has of himself? Or is the student asleep and the teacher's offering him a chance to at least consider that because of the images, the ideas, the beliefs that he has about himself, that he summarily rejects any moment that threatens that identity. That's the task, and that's what relationships provide, a way in which we can be suddenly standing in the light of an understanding that we have brought with us, in quotes, this level of consciousness, has carried forward from time something that no longer serves any purpose at all. And since it serves no purpose in the real moment, other than, God willing, us understanding it's time to set it down, then if it's still acting in our name, saying, I do not deny reality, I am not defensive, I am not afraid, I am not angry, fill in the blank. If it's still doing that, then that's a limitation on the revelation of the moment. Because the revelation didn't come. Teacher wasn't judging the student. Teacher was saying, look, you know, dear boy, I love you, but you still have this incredibly defensive attitude born out of any moment that threatens some precious image you have of yourself, including being someone who wants to be realized. Because if you could see that you just got angry at being told that you're defensive, then you'd realize that there was in that moment a chance for you to see something has come with you into this moment. Here it is. Will you take a look at it? Will you let the light show you this this limitation so that you can begin to realize? It isn't the teacher's opinion, his approval I need. What I need is to wake up from the dream that without the approval, without something confirming me, I'm no one. Then we have a chance, Tim, to to use every moment of our life for the purpose in which it is given to us.
0: As you're talking, I remember a story you told about the roving reporter who went out and discovered a road that wasn't on his map, and then he drove down the road, he saw people lined up standing in front of walls banging their heads and when he went out to try and talk to them and find out why they don't just walk around the wall a wall came up in front of him and the one person that he saw walk through the wall when he finally got his attention the old man came back and he said you know how did you walk through that wall and the old man says oh it's nothing I just 11 words who i have been is powerless to take me any further yeah. That's and, you get, and you get at that so beautifully in so many different ways in the book, and especially in terms of relationships.
2: Yes. Because that's, look, what do, we, what do we fight over? What do any two people fight over? Not just man and woman, any two people, any two political parties, any two countries. What do we fight well, over?
0: I don't know about you, but I fight over who's right. (laughs) That's right. That's exactly it, Tim.
2: Because I have, in that moment, I'm, look, I'm sitting uh, at a restaurant and uh, minding my own business, and for whatever reason, somebody walks over and says, aren't you so-and-so? And And maybe I am, maybe I'm not. And I I might say, well, no, you've, you've mistaken me for someone else, and then that person says, no, no, you've got to be. And any moment in which something challenges us, there's this sort of fight-or-flight reaction belongs to a lower level of consciousness, clearly no different than the deer or the lion. And in that moment where that, that, that part of the brain fires off, it, it feels threatened and it can only resist the rest of the moment that it sees as being a threat to it but if we examine that moment what we discover is that and this is very important in our relationships with our partner the reason that i'm threatened in an argument is because my identity is vested in my belief that you have to be what i expect you to be and I don't realize that you need me to be who you need me to be, which is really a level of codependency that's sort of innate in these earlier stages of a relationship with our partner. Because we we we, bound, we what the, we we we, bound, we not bound, we we're bounded. <laughs> bonded, that's what I'm looking for. We bonded in the early days because Everything you said and did tickled me pink. Do you, everybody remembers falling in love. There's nothing that anyone can possibly do to you in those early days that you don't fight, find delightful. <laughs> and even the things you don't immediately like, you bury them because there's too much stuff going on that's good. I call that the woo-hoo stage of a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's where, for all intents and purposes, you are bringing out the best of me. I didn't know I could be so fascinated. I didn't know I could feel that kind of you know, thrill. I had no idea my body could experience that kind of jubilation on and on. But by natural processes, that woo-hoo stage starts to morph into what we could call the boo-hoo stage, where instead of the best of me, you begin to bring out the rest of me, where parts of me that now have kind of, uh, what does B.B. King say, the thrill is gone? You know, now exactly. I'm starting to not just notice these, what I call imperfections in you, but they're starting to bother me. So I go from this wonderful, can't-talk-to-you-enough, be around you enough to having these buttons that I didn't know could be pushed. And the real point is, and particularly what you brought up, the pattern begins to emerge where I blame you for pushing a button. But what I have to understand if I want the pattern to end is that you didn't create the button. It came forward through time with me, in an unknown body of consciousness that carries these badges, these buttons, as the result of incomplete experiences that were met with incomplete incomplete understanding. So in the end, Tim, the pattern ends when we can learn as a partner to say to our partner, not outwardly, inwardly, you know what, Uh, thanks, I I didn't know that about myself. I had no idea that I felt like I couldn't possibly, no one should challenge this estimation of myself, that you should uh, challenge my opinion. Who, Who walks around thinking that they are everything that God created and no one should challenge it? But in us are those tendencies in a consciousness we're asleep to. Relationships bring up the content so that another kind of light a new awareness can begin to help us see it, realize it, and release it.
0: Wonderful. Wonderful. It is, it's, it, and it's not you that's irritating me. It's our interaction that's showing me that I have an irritable little person inside of me, <laughs> Yes, it, <laughs> to quote yes. you from a previous talk. <laughs> yes, that, that, that's
2: exactly right. And look how nice this is. I'll show you. Have have you ever been able to fix someone, Tim?
0: Not yet. I'm I'm still working on it, though.
2: (laughs) You and I and everyone listening to us knows that even if we can get someone to, to jump through a hoop, that it isn't two or three times before they jump through the hoop, before they turn and snarl, and the resentment born of believing that they had to make us content turns out to be a contempt that they feel for us because of their own weakness in jumping through the hoop so we can't fix other people and yet i'm hoping everybody's following you and i know that we've had moments where there were limitations in us that someone may have even called out that we resisted but where at last because by the grace of the divine by the grace of an act of love, the conditions required to reveal that level of unconsciousness keep coming back and coming back and coming back until one day you sit there and you go, "Holy cow! I never, I never understood it. The, the, I, I never understood. I, I resented you because you didn't approve of me. Instead of seeing the problem lay." with the idea that I had to be approved by you to be worthy. It's a lie. But I didn't see it as a lie, and so the blame went forward in a pattern where I either pushed or pulled and tried to get you to be someone who would see me as I want to be seen. Why? To confirm an image I have of myself that no matter how many people confirm it can never be made real. So in that moment the healing takes place because the limitation has been revealed as an aspect of a level of consciousness I didn't know I was identified with. And in that, revelation is the invitation for me to see the truth that sets me free. And it does. And funny enough, when I begin to see the problem in my relationship isn't the limitation I blame on you, but rather something I've yet to realize in myself, then I stop pushing to change you. And you get a chance to see where the limitation is. I call it the jujitsu of love. Because when I stop trying to throw you and just get out of the way, then you have no one to fight with. Because you can't blame me for your pain when I stop arguing. Then you get to see what's living in you that's the limitation in our relationship. And when you have any two people realizing that the task of love and of that relationship is for each person through that relationship to become realized through it, to see where a limitation is keeping the perfection of love from manifesting. And the more we get out of the way, the more we realize there's an innate love that brought us together for the purpose of perfecting our relationship with it through our relationships.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things I love about your book is that you're talking about some of the practicality and you're also talking about as, as you refer to it, love, the higher kind of love that matters yes. most, yes. and how it, it is not and cannot be determined by what others do or don't do toward us. And you yes. say, this should be evident after all. After all, what kind of love is it that gives itself only to those who give, give it back when and as expected? Besides, if there's one thing we should all know by now, it's this. It's never been in our power to make others love us, as we would have them do. Yes. And so, it, 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 I, I really enjoy how you keep calling us to the idea that we don't have to do all of this work. We, the work will be done for us by that higher kind of love when we just yes. do our piece. You know, yes. to, so- you, you 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 talk at times about in the book about creating the space where when I'm called to the negative reaction, I recognize it and I hold back in that, you know, jujitsu of love you're just talking about, and I leave a space where my partner can see their pain rather than me keep trying to show them how they're creating my pain, yes. which, of course, blinds them, etc. One of the things I want to ask is, because you've got this wonderful multi-layers that you're talking about in the book, most of us come into these books like this and spiritual teachings with all kinds of old baggage. And one of the questions that, that suggested here in your literature is, how do we let go of any old bitterness that's built up between us and our partner, our family, our friend? I'd love to have you address that for some of us, because I know people are saying, yeah, there's just too much baggage. I, I, I can't fix this. There's
2: we have to have new knowledge, Tim, before we can have a new mind. Christ spoke of metanoia. This idea that we need new ears to be able to hear, eyes to see. Because in this instance, and you've said it so well, and it's a delight to hear that you're mining that out of the book. In in Scripture, East and West, but mostly Western Actually, I think there's six or seven different kinds of love that are pointed out. But the the most uh, obvious uh, are this this kind of Eros love, this very physical and aphilic love, uh, uh, which is like a brotherly love. Most of our relationships are based in that. And then there's the love that Christ and Buddha and every great prophet and saint on this planet talks about irregardless of the branding of that through religiosity. And that is agape. That is this understanding that all of us to some degree know exists, and we know it exists through what I call divine dissatisfaction. If everything and anything in this world was the answer to making me feel whole, happy, and complete, in a continual constant basis then by now I would know it I would have it or I've had it and it didn't do it that even means with my wife whom I love dearly my parents, God bless their souls those people in my life that I love I understand that the people in my life that I love are placeholders they are manifestations of love that exist for the sole purpose as I do for they of helping me remember that there is another kind of love that I am called to know, to be and to live in and from that doesn't fight that doesn't hate that isn't afraid that never separates and that All of the relationships are moments in which if we see it by the very fact of seeing our impatience, our negative attitudes, that by the imperfection that is revealed to us in ourselves, about ourselves in that moment, it couldn't be revealed unless there was a perfect light there showing it to us. How else would I know I missed the mark? if there wasn't something making it evident to me, not judging me, as we love to do to ourselves, because that seems to prove that we know what love is. No one who judges himself or herself knows the love I'm speaking of. Love doesn't judge. He maketh the sun to shine on good and evil alike, so said Christ, about this divine love. So, yes, it's a stretch, and people are sometimes very bothered when they hear me speak of these things, are right. Because in our hearts, we all know we're missing the mark. We're so caught up with trying to find ourselves, prove ourselves, make of ourselves something, get others to validate what can never be validated, that our lives are just running around and running out of steam, running out of the daily bread. Because we're, we, we, we've, we've not had the, the new knowledge, the true understanding that's everywhere around us, that is trying to say to this guy, look man, and now I'm sorry for the long answer, why am I bitter? Why did that person come up in my mind again, my parents who abused me, that woman who betrayed me when I was 27, who I gave everything to and, and turned on me like that? And here's the answer to the question that summarizes everything I'm saying. And everybody, you might want to write it down, because it's one of the most important things that I teach, at least in my language. As goes my attention, so comes my experience. As goes my attention, so comes my experience. It's a multi-layered principle. But we've covered it in the beginning. When I give my attention to Tata, the new little fawn, I feel all the little fawn qualities. I feel a tenderness, a gentleness, because my attention links to the consciousness of that creature. And in some respect, by the way, the consciousness of that creature links to my own. That's the the hope for animals on this planet, of being raised gradually, if humanity can only begin to understand that responsibility. But I feel ta-ta. I feel that little, timid, beautiful creature. Now, my attention links me to that consciousness. Why, Tim, when my mind brings up that person who hurt me, why do I give my attention to that pain? Would I deliberately attend to something for which giving my attention to it gives me the experience of the recreation of that conflict i would never do it consciously which means that my attention is being used by a level of consciousness for the continuity of itself and not for the continuity of what it says it's doing because when it thinks about people that hurt it and that want that it wants to protect itself from or do something so it can escape them it's not escaping the people or the condition it's giving its attention to the condition that's creating its experience, and so it's actually reliving unconsciously the very thing it says it doesn't want. And that's why bitterness and hatred and anger doesn't go away, because we've yet to awaken to realize there is a part of our consciousness that loves to reincarnate those things, which is why we don't learn from the past, which is why history repeats itself because there's an unconscious nature believing it knows the purpose of the moment, when instead that consciousness is perpetuating the very moment it says it doesn't want. Sorry for all of that, but I had to get the whole thing out.
0: Well, no apologies necessary. I'm just sitting here thinking, boy, am I glad this is recorded so I can go back and listen and take more notes. I, love, I have uh, so many things going on in my head. I, I, I love the idea you talk about how it's These different things are in scale, and um, when you said my attention, when it goes to an old bitterness, is being used by a level of my consciousness, not my true self, but by a level of my consciousness simply to ensure its continuity. Yes. Because why else else would I keep going back to the pain? I say I hate the pain, but my... My my mind keeps going back to it, and so it's not my volitional mind, clearly, because what I would choose in this moment is to focus on tata or some other loving interaction.
2: No, 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 no. Listen to me. What I would choose to do is be aware of the fact that something in me, by resisting my past, is recreating it. Resistance is... A secret form of attraction resistance is a secret form of being bound to the thing I'm resisting so that I don't need to think of Tata when I'm unhappy that's resistance what I need to do is agree to be aware of that level of consciousness that wants to recreate itself why because a level of awareness that can see that consciousness is already above and beyond that consciousness. It is showing me something concealed that in its revelation is released because no one would consciously hurt himself or herself under any circumstances.
0: Right. So what you're saying is if I try to get out of my negative state, By focusing on a positive thing, it's just the same part of my mind trying to escape something. Yes, absolutely. And the only only liberty comes from realizing that what drew my attention to something that generates pain is a level of consciousness that's just trying to keep rolling.
2: Yes, yes. Because if I'm aware of it, suddenly, for the first time, the weed has been threshed from the chaff. I have come out from amongst them, a new level of self, a new identity. If you want the 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 the, uh, the beginning of conscience, the first advent of, of Christ consciousness appears. That light, that awareness knows these things are not only who are not who I am, but that they exist for the purpose of this revelation. Did you ever think about that passage? which makes no sense to most people, very, very uh, important in our relationships with others, to love thine enemy? What in God's name does that mean? How can I love my enemy? Ah, the moment in which the revelation brings up this anger, this resentment, this fear in me, is the same as the moment I'm invited, if I'll be present to it, to see that level of consciousness. So he prepares a, a feast in the presence of my enemies. My enemies have no authority unless I don't want to have an enemy. <laughs> Can you follow that?
0: Yes, I think I do. I, I, I'm put to mind of um, Dale Ellen Hoffman, who talks about the ancient Aramaic and says one of the definitions for enemy from the ancient Aramaic is anyone or anything in the presence of whom I hold my breath. So yeah. when I resist an event, that's the creation of this tension and the revelation that's in that moment that I'm rejecting. That you're talking about—that's the gift. That's the banquet.
2: Yes, and and I, I don't I don't want to put words in the mouth of this fellow, but. I love that, that that the Aramaic because what is that really saying? When I hold my breath, what is the ruach adonai, the breath of the spirit? So here I am, and in the presence of this thing, I hold my breath. I'm cut off from spirit, and not only am I cut off from spirit, but to the point of everything we're saying, in that moment, because I'm caught up in this loop of a nature that summarily resists anything that challenges the image it has of itself, then. That same nature says, here, guy, I will be your guide. Here's what to do. Protect yourself. Defend yourself. Go make a a billion dollars. Do this, do that, and you will be free. That's exactly the same thing as a false god. That is a false guide appearing as light, but that's actually born of the darkness That I don't know I'm in Which is why I don't know that guide To be false and dark I hope I'm not getting too carried away here Tim, too deep
0: Well, it it reminds me of how you say so clearly In so many other talks That when I listen to fear Fear is only going to tell me what to do So that fear can run my life another day Another week, another month That's it And it also puts me in mind of you know, you must have been doing some Krishnamurti reading over the years because Krishnamurti has so many people say, okay, so now I see this. Now what? He says, well, if you see it clearly to its source, it loses its power over you. You don't have to decide what to do next. If you see actuality in the moment, it acts on you, and you act from that. There's a flow. You don't have to ask and think about what to do. You just do. That's
2: it. That is uh That is whatever that, yes, that's right. (laughs) Look, um, if you pick up a hot skillet, do you need instructions to put it down?
0: Well, and to save your voice for a minute, I really like what you said in one of your talks about how I don't have to keep reminding myself consciously day in and day out after I've burned myself on the skillet, stay away from the hot skillet, stay, because it's there. Right. I don't have to keep thinking about it.
2: Exactly. And it's the same thing, Tim, when it comes to relationships. I say, when I'm negative with my partner, that they produced this pain in me. They did not produce this pain in me. They revealed there is a pain in me that I have yet to be able to understand and heal. And when I understand those moments, then instead of turning and and letting my pain push back, I'm present to this unhealed part that has been concealed, and the work is done by the revelation, the light of that awareness, because who would live consciously carrying around something that creates conflict for them. When I do that properly, then I begin to enter into a different kind of relationship where, you know what? Have you ever been upset with your partner where you were blaming your partner for your pain, but you could see, at least in retrospect? Before I get upset with anybody, I'm in pain. Before I get upset with anybody, there is a pain in me. I don't understand that that pain in me was there before I found someone to blame for it. My partner has the same circumstance. And you get to a place where both people are in pain and neither one knows their partner is suffering because all that nature is concerned with is its suffering and what has to be done to get rid of it. Well, when you understand the pain belongs to a level of consciousness that is only interested in keeping it alive through this seemingly divided relationship where people are different, we're not different. We all want the same thing. We want to be whole, happy, loving human beings, but that don't understand that isn't something we create. It's something we're being given and shown moment to moment through our relationships
0: yeah you're right back to the idea of the mirror that was in the quote I was reading from the beginning yeah, yeah. and on, on, on page 100 you say it so simply no one, no event is the sole cause of what we see as disturbing us any more than a mirror is responsible for showing us something in it that we would rather not see
2: exactly <laughs> you know you walk into a room there's five people there and you you can feel the negativity they they've been fighting they don't even they could be dead silent you would know they've been fighting why because suddenly you can feel the negativity in you but if you don't know that the negativity is just a kind of mirror effect a resonate <clears throat> a resonation of certain vibration then that nature will say boy boy are these people negative (laughs) and suddenly you're negative instead you could walk in and feel the negativity and realize i need to be very awake now because i know something in me can feel what's going on and i need to be the witness of it not its unconscious instrument
0: well there's a challenge there's a challenge.
2: And part of me was... See, Tim, you hinted at it. It's not up to me to fix.
0: Right. Right. It's up to me to see the insanity. You know, I, I mean, we, we, we have this culture where uh, we're programmed to think you made me angry, you hurt my feelings, etc. And yet we're not aware of how well we've been programmed. Now, exactly. at one and the same moment that I could see how ridiculous it is for somebody to get mad and smash a mirror because they don't like what it's reflecting to them, I think nothing yes. of blaming my partner for the anger I feel. And yet yes. as you just laid out, it's the same thing. Yes. So I can't I can't see my own insanity unless I slow down and, and begin this process of creating that space as you talk about in the book. To to resist the moment where some part of me tells me to do a reaction or a negativity or a blaming and to just, so, so what's one of the best ways to start with that? How do I, how do I, in, from your experience, how do I begin to build that strength of the part of me that can take a breath and hold, hold back that negative reaction? Any, any tricks you have, any tips for us in that regard?
2: Absolutely. But let's be clear. We're not holding back the relationship we're just not expressing it that's different we're not denying it and we're not expressing it we're witnessing it an example a couple partnership of some kind and one of the partners has had a tough day come home and the other partner sees the partner who's had a bad day come in and because they know the look on that person's face, they immediately <clears throat> say something like, did you have a tough day? To which the partner then begins to say all the things that went wrong with the day. Now, the more the one partner starts to unload, the more the other partner starts to wish they never asked, because now they're getting negative too. So here comes the stop, drop, and endure exercise stop, drop, and endure. We've been studying these ideas, let's say one of the partners, and they realize they can feel the momentum of this negativity starting to ramp up, and they want to retort. They want to say something. You're always negative. When are you going to have a good day? Blah, blah, blah. Some passive aggressive statement. But we know that when pain answers pain, the response will be more pain. So we're going to become... You ready for a beautiful word? Do you know the original meaning of the word patience, Tim? Uh
0: Something to uh, suffer myself? Yes, to suffer myself. And, and, and can you help us, because when I've heard this in your talks before and tried to share it with people, they, their interpretation is, I'm telling them they need to just suffer and accept suffering. And the, the archaic meaning of that has more to do with uh, what you just said, um, enduring myself, allowing. Yes.
2: Um, yes. It is a way of understanding that I have to date been someone who in this circumstance always shoot first and ask questions later. I'm going to deliberately, as best I'm able to do, in part because I understand that Nothing that's a part of a pattern can bring the pattern to an end. Nothing that is a part of a pattern can bring the pattern to an end. But if there is something in me that knows that as true, that's already outside of the pattern. Now I must instrument, I must act the knowledge of not being part of the continuation of the pattern. But that doesn't mean that that pattern and that nature isn't in me. So I am going to be patient. I am going to stop in the midst of its appearance and drop all the habitual vocalization, mentation, emotional response and become the witness of it so that I'm going to endure the manifestation of my own lower consciousness. I'm literally going to agree to die to it and for it. This is a crucifixion. I'm not going to identify with it. I'm going to let it come up, and I'm going to watch it die. And it will, because that unconsciousness, that level of sleep, is mechanical. It only exists as long as we are resisting a circumstance. And the minute that we agree... To be the observer of this resistance instead of its instrument, it only has so far to go. So I stop, I drop all the thought, the feeling, being the witness of it, and I endure that nature until I see it fade from sight. And if I will do that, I will see the authority that nature has had over me. I will understand the great myths like Rumpelstiltskin and why when she finally knew the name of the creature, she gained authority over it. The old meaning of gaining the name, meaning you knew the phonetics, you knew the energy source, so that she was above the the little evil thing instead of participating at its level of trying to make peace with it. This is what we have to work at, Tim. And it all can be done. Were created to succeed at understanding this relationship.
0: Wonderful. It, it reminds me of a beautiful story you have of a man who was raised, and, and he woke up and realized, you know, I, I'm kind of a slave here, but the master was, you know, not so bad. And, but over time, he decided to research freedom. Eventually, he realized that you can learn all that you want about freedom, and that you'd never get free. And then finally, you know, the punchline of of the story was he went to the master and said, I, "I'm not going to do this anymore." And the master said, "You have to." And he finally said, "You know the master said, "I'm the law." and And, and the hero in your story finally said, "I am the new law." Yes." And, and he becomes
2: he, the new law by by understanding the only authority the master has over him is his mistaken belief in the authority of the master.
0: When we become the
2: new law, we are made new. That's what you're alluding to.
0: Right, and what you talk about in all of these stories is you're not talking about an external master. All of these stories are the internal, that I have been a slave to a part of myself, a level of consciousness within me that's going to continue its part in the pattern just so that it continues, but that nothing in that pattern... No part of a pattern can bring an end to it. So I have to become aware of a, as you talk about so well in the book, a higher level of love, this higher order in scale of this force which can awaken me to potentials within me that I've been asleep to. Yes,
2: and the beauty of it is it's already there, Tim. It is the very basis of our being. It's just that we have, to use words, kind of... Fallen into this uh, level of consciousness where uh, a false light, an imagined light, has replaced the real one. Every time we save ourselves, fix ourselves by trying to become what someone else or what we think the world tells us we have to become, without knowing it, we are following a false guide. And that false guide lives to create false relationships so that in the pain that ensues, it can strengthen its authority. We can change that by understanding what it means to want to see the truth of the moment more than we want to prove that we already know it by getting negative. Wonderful. So that was a pre-recorded interview with Guy Finley, and as I said before, I am headed out to get another IV of fluid and hopefully get my voice back. And so I am going to play. I know we've played this before, but I had hoped that I would be well enough to, to uh, help Michael do the show today. But this is the Why Again one-hour workshop. Enjoy.
1: What exists is energy in form. And relative to this integrated energy system that we call a body-mind unit, there are two qualities. There's integrative energy, that which is over on the left side of the board, and disintegrative energy, that which is over here on the right side of the board. Now, we've had the experience over the last two years. Our granddaughter came into the world just a little over two years ago. And, you know, it was this little baby, little structure, And you know something? She doesn't look like that at all today, two years later. And she doesn't look at all like she looked at, like she looked at a month or two months or three months or four months or five or six or ten or twenty. And, and what you have to conclude, if you get out of the, the dullness of incapacitated perception, what you notice is this form is a piece of plastic. It's in a state of becoming, and it becomes according to the energetic patterns in which we engage. If we engage in these things on the right side of the board, hostility and fear, grief, rage, anger, sadness, jealousy, revenge, then we're continuously putting into the cells that are storing that particular energy, and my offering is that every cell in your fu- structure functions as a brain cell, functions to store information. And so we're literally changing the plastic nature of every cell and overall the whole structure of this thing we call a body-mind unit. And we're laying that on top of, you know, we we can't just step in, or at least normally, I think we get to a level of power where we might be able to, but we don't just step in and and make an instant change in a, a whole structure. Why? Are there are a thousand generations of that mind energy becoming flesh within each of our structures. You know, We don't have to direct its becoming, it's happening. But as we grow in awareness and choose to engage in energetic patterns, we start to direct its becoming. This side of the board, we direct it into the disease process. This side of the board, we direct it into health and wholeness and higher states of being. And If we lived on a planet where seven and a half people woke up every morning, seven and a half billion people, pardon me, woke up every morning realizing that this is who they are, how different would our creative process be? If we didn't have people playing these games, if we weren't playing these games, how different would this piece of plastic look for each of us? What would it be capable of? And as I say, when we engage in that mind energy and it lands on the cell, That mind energy, when it's of a disintegrative nature, the cell says, ouch, it informs us that the quality of our creative process is off base. But what do we do? Well, what our culture has taught most of us to do is blame somebody else for that. Have you ever said this to somebody? You made me really mad. You hurt me. You, you, you really have a problem. You ever said that to somebody? And the question I like to ask is, if they're the one with the problem, why are you the one with the pain? That doesn't make any sense. If they're the one with the problem, they'd be the one with the pain. But if you're in pain and you think somebody else has got a problem, you've got a problem. Now, we have a definition for the act of thinking or speaking as though something outside of you is causing what's happening inside of you. And that's called denial. So denial is the act of thinking or speaking as though something outside of us is causing something inside of us to happen. Now something outside of us can cause something that's inside of us to move or intensify in its movement, but it can't cause that energy to be there. It has to be there in the first place. But when we live in this game of denial, you know, whenever I feel this way, I talk about them or somebody or anybody. What happens is that in order to pretend that my feelings aren't coming from the interaction of my mind energy and my cells, I have to hide that whole process from myself. I literally have to dissociate from that process. And I have to hallucinate, I have to generate a worldview, a perceptual construct that tells me that the problem is really out there. And, of course, one of my favorite tongue-in-cheek lines, which many of you have heard used many times is, If you've been through it 87 different times with 42 different people, how is it that you're the only one that was there every time? Sooner or later, we have to acknowledge that we're engaged in our own lives. But if we spend our whole lives in denial, you made me mad, you made me sad, you made me angry, you hurt me, that upset me, they disturbed me, then we have a device called a mind that continuously constructs the world we see as though that was true. And what that means is that the real cause of what we're experiencing, we have to dissociate from. And if you were involved in this work back in the early days, you'll remember that I used to write on the board, deny, suppress. And, then, and it totally changed the work when I was given this instruction. I mean, I had specific instructions that were given internally from Ruka that said, Michael, no, it's not suppressed. It's not merely hiding something from yourself. It's locking it away and throwing away the key. Once you're in an arena where you're in denial, you made me mad, your mad is no longer yours to change. So guess what? You now have a life sentence of mad. Anybody and everybody that will, can trigger that into activity can seem to make you mad. Why can they make you mad? Because mad is there. And if mad is there, it's an energy. And if you pushed it down a thousand times, there's a very intense high-energy wave radiating out from you that says to all the world on an energetic level, hey, world, is there anybody that knows how to make me mad? Have you ever noticed there's never a shortage of volunteers? Why is that? Because life abhors you being diseased. Life doesn't want you dead. So life has been structured, it seems, so that if you are holding to a dis-ease energy and you've dissociated from it, someone's going to show up, and that happens through the law of residence. Someone is going to receive the energetic invitation to come to your life, and do to you exactly what you never wanted to have done. And if you tell them what's wrong with them, and you get rid of them, and you go away and you take the geographic cure, you'll find somebody else and somebody else and somebody else. I feel so blessed the universe reserved the title of my book for me. Why is this happening to me again? Because virtually everybody in the universe has asked the question. And You know, probably the greatest atrocity done to us as human beings down through the ages and that we've bought into is that we've had hidden from us the fact that we are by nature creators. Nobody told us that. They told us all kinds of crazy things, but they didn't tell us that through the energetic patterns we engage in, we create our own cellular health and diseases, we create everything that shows up, we literally create the way this piece of plastic called the body-mind unit unfolds and becomes, either toward disease or toward health. It depends on what the predominant resonant energy is in your structure. So for people who live in this state of denial, this state where it's all everybody else's fault, they hold all of these causes within themselves, but they press those causes down, hide them from themselves, and by so doing, intensify them every time they have to press it down, and therefore send out a signal that gets even stronger and stronger and stronger. You know, imagine that I've got a a three-foot diameter spring. It sits here on the floor, and it stands three feet high. Can that spring do anything sitting there on the floor? Not at all. But what happens if I push down on it and lock it? And I push down on it and lock it. And I push down on it and lock it. What happens after years of doing that, and I let the lock off? A lot of power stored in the spring. If I've been spending years and years and years telling everybody else why they're the problem in my life i'm pushing down that energy adding energy and information to it and by so doing i'm setting up a literally an attractive energy field that will resonate or pull somebody into my life to do it to me again so when i live life that way when that's the game that i play the things that i most don't want to deal with are literally stored in brain cells When I talk about building brain cells in this work, I'm not talking about building new physical structure. I'm talking about the fact that every cell in the structure is designed to store information, literally to store frequencies. So every cell can hold energetic patterns and therefore function as a brain cell. When there are certain brain cells that I don't want to deal with, things that I'm in denial about, I push those things down and hide them. I intensify them, and by so doing, I set up a high-energy wave. Now, I didn't know at the time how important a piece of information this was going to be way back, and this goes back probably 35 or 36 years ago. I used to keynote at a conference called Global Science out in Colorado. And one year, a gentleman named Marcel Vogel came to the conference. Marcel uh, was a 23-year senior scientist from IBM. He was the only non-degreed scientist that IBM ever had on their payroll. And the reason he was non-degreed was because he was self-educated and nobody could teach him anything. At the age of 11, Marcel invented chemical light. You know, you go to a football game and they've got these light sticks, and you break the glass tubes inside the plastic, and the chemicals mix, and they light up? Well, that was Marcel's invention. He invented that 11. His family didn't have the money. Marcel patented it himself. If your computer works, guess why? Marcel invented the magnetic coating on the plates of your hard drive that allows your hard drive to store information. That's the kind of mind that Marcel had. And what he did this particular year is he brought a thing called a Delaware camera. It was created by a man out of England named George Delaware. This camera is a little different than your average camera. Normally, you click the shutter, the aperture opens, light energy comes in, it's registered on the photographic plate, you develop it, you've got a picture. Not so with the Delaware camera. In between the aperture and the photographic plate, there's a tuning mechanism. So you can literally tune the camera, somewhat like a TV set or a radio, as to what frequencies it receives. And so what Marcel was able to do with this camera was he was able to attune it to the frequency of waves that leave the mind when we think of thought. And what Marcel was able to do was to take pictures of the high-energy waves that leave the mind when we think of thought. So whatever we are holding in the way of mind energy within our structures, from our own lives, or from our genes, we're literally sending out a composite of frequencies continuously. And because the universe is governed by the law of resonance, the law of resonance simply stated says this, when two energy systems are in tune or in harmony with each other, there's an interchange of energy between them when one system is amplified above the other. You probably remember from physics class in high school, you took a middle C tuning fork, you hit it on a desk, and you put it in front of a second middle C tuning fork. The second middle C tuning fork was not moving, but when you put the first energized tuning fork in front of it, the second tuning fork started to move. It's called resonance, transfer of information. So notice that this tuning fork is moving and through resonance, that one starts to move. Resonance creates motion. You might think about a, uh, let's imagine you've got a baby grand piano and you have two of them and you open the top of the two baby grand pianos. Now there are hundreds and hundreds of keys in each piano. But if I go over to one of those pianos and I hit the middle C and I go look into the second piano, there are going to be a bunch of strings vibrating in that second piano. Guess which ones? Only the ones that are keyed to middle C are going to be moving in that second piano. So resonance creates motion. Now, in the human realm, my offering is, resonance adds another piece to the puzzle, and that is resonance creates motion toward. So You know, I hit middle C on this piano, the other piano isn't going to get up and crawl up on top of it. It's not going to create motion toward. But in the human realm, when I set up a frequency, those who are in resonance with that frequency are going to tend to be drawn into my space. And if there's something that I have denied and dissociated from a thousand times and it's deeply hidden away in the darkest recesses of my mind, I don't even know it's there, but having pushed it down a thousand times, it's got a pretty powerful wave coming out of it. Now, if this person has the matching bag of garbage, if this person has the brain cells and the behaviors that match what I've denied and dissociated from, Unless they are very conscious, they will tend to be directed by that energy wave. That energy wave will resonate these brain cells in them. Those brain cells will fire, constitute what they would call their conscious thought and behavior, and they're going to tend to do a behavior toward us. Guess what the behavior is likely going to be? Let's see if that's true. Has anybody ever gone into somebody's space totally committed to being loving, nurturing and, caring, nurturing, and caring, and all of a sudden found yourself functioning like a mad banshee? What happened? Well, here's my offering. You went in totally committed to being loving and nurturing and caring, but their high-energy waves set something else in motion in you. It resonated your mad banshee. And when your mad banshee started to move, that took over your behavior, and there you were, doing it to them again. That's how the why is this happening to me again principle occurs. And guess what? Even if you didn't do it, they're going to see you do it. Well, Michael, that doesn't make any sense. Oh, yeah, it does when you know how the mind operates. Because here's what's going to happen. When they do that behavior, when they bounce off of that high energy wave in you and do that behavior, they're going to resonate those very brain cells that you've denied and dissociated from. When those brain cells start to fire, they're going to create a perceptual construct that will be projected from those brain cells, and you're going to show up in their mind. Literally, they will see a body that they call you in their mind with and made up of the threads of energy of what you denied and dissociated from. So they're going to show up in your mind with your problem with that. You're going to see that it's their problem. is going to be really clear to you. But then notice, you've been through it 87 different times with 42 different people, and you're the only one that was there every time. This is an internal process that comes about as a result of denial and dissociation. So what happens when we deny and dissociate? This is the energetic pattern that occurs. And then when those brain cells fire, and and we live in a culture, you know, psychology tends to tell us that projection is taking something that's inside of you and putting it outside of you. That's not projection. That's externalization. Projection is when I take brain cells I've denied and dissociated from and I generate perception out of it. I generate the picture world that I see. Now, it's interesting, and, of course, we've been teaching this for decades, but a couple of years ago, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago now, we came across some research that was done by the CIA. If you go to CIA.gov, you can download a book. God knows how many taxpayer dollars they spent on it. It was called The Study of Human Intelligence. And there's a, a chapter in it on perception. They're studying how perception works. And here's their bottom line conclusion. You can go to the CIA website and download this book free. What it says is, the mind does not record reality, the mind generates reality. This perceptual world, the world that you see is a generated world. And as a generated world, it is a construct of your mind. And until you interrupt what's at the root of the way your mind constructs the world that you see, you will tend to be stuck in this pattern of denial, dissociation, and then projection. Now, our culture tells us, that we have a pair of windows that we all get to look out of and see what's going on in the world. That is probably the biggest lie you've ever been told. You do not have a set of windows that look out into the world. It's not possible. You have an antenna. It's called the eye. It's a frequency receiving device. It receives frequencies based in light energy. Light energy enters the eye and through the law of resonance, the information that comes in through the eye resonates brain cells and brain cells generate perception, the world you see. You can't look out through this antenna. All the eye is, as the other senses are, are simply frequency receivers. They're just receivers of energy. And whatever energy you have brain cells for, whatever brain cells it resonates in you, the brain, the mind, distinguish between those two because the mind functions through every cell in the body, the mind generates this perception. And it's interesting, there's some Harvard research that says that in a a time frame where 10,000 brain cells fire, That is, there are 10,000 measurable units of electrical activity going on within this structure. In that time frame, which is about a 25th of a second, the max amount of data that goes into building your perceptual world is nine bits. That's it. You get to see nine bits out of 10,000 brain cells firing. And it's been estimated that the actuality of the world perhaps contains as much as 20 trillion bits in that same time frame. So we're looking at a tiny, tiny fragment of what's actually happening in the world and a tiny fragment of what's going on within our minds. Now, when you get down to that, what you call this sort of a device is an evidential device. When you're only looking at nine bits of data out of ten thousand brain cells firing, you're looking at evidence. There are no facts there. There is only evidence. And there's a device, or there's a, a, a function of the mind called a bias. And you know, in, in electronics, if you've got a, let's say, you want to, you've got a transistor, and that transistor is designed to pass a certain frequency you have to apply a voltage to it that allows that to pass. Well, it's pretty much the same here. You have to apply a a willingness to have certain evidence present itself. And so that bias that is, is what's contained in literally our whole generational pattern. And as a result, the only evidence we ever get to see is evidence of our own BS. And, of course, that's belief system. Anybody else have a different reality for those initials? If you have a different reality for those initials, I'll invite you to notice that's your reality. It's not mine. It's a belief system. I've had people who got you know, upset with me for writing the initials BS on the board. And, and notice that they weren't upset Because of my meaning, my reality, my perceptual construct for BS, belief system, they were upset and disturbed by a perceptual construct in their minds for those initials. All upset is internal. You can't be upset unless you have an upsetting energy within yourself. And if you live in denial, they upset me, then dissociating from that upset You will project it into your brain image of someone else. And, you know, an endless procession of people will show up being the problem in your life. But you're the only one that was there every time. And when you understand that, these eyes don't see out there, but the world you see is generated from the firing of brain cells within you. Dr. Tim introduced a uh, a video by a gentleman, and take a look on, you know, you can go into YouTube and and search for Anil Seth, A-N-I-L-S-E-T-H, and he does a beautiful presentation where he informs us that the brain doesn't see light and the brain doesn't hear sounds. No such thing happens. The brain, the perceptual system, is constantly making its best guess about what's going on out there. When you realize that's how your perceptual system works, then, and you realize that perception has a quality, you've got to have a standard by which to measure the perceptions you're going to accept and the ones you aren't. There is a sign within your structure that will tell you 100% of the time when your perception is off base. And that is... Is your perception fueled by either hostility or fear? Ever asked earlier, did anybody ever accuse you of doing something you've never done or saying something you've never said? You know, most everybody in an audience will raise their hand, you know, kind of a laugh. Yeah, I sure have. Take a moment and think about any time in your life where somebody's done that kind of accusation and they were not correct. What state of mind were they in when they accused you of saying something you never said and doing something you never did, even though they swear they saw you do it? guarantee it's always hostility and fear. Now, probably that makes sense to you when you're looking at other people, but notice that you still have a tendency to trust your mind when it's doing hostility and fear? Hostility and fear are indicators that the mind is using corrupt data to build the world that you see. If you come from generations and generations and generations of hostility and fear-based perception, then it seems like that's the only thing possible, is perceptions based in that. But the mind does not record reality. The mind generates reality. If your mind is generating your reality out of hostility or fear, and remember this is reality, the perceptual output of the mind is your reality. And what's going on in the world, this 20 trillion bit world, is actuality. When you can let the actuality come in and teach you, well, (laughs) What are you going to have to do to be able to do that? You're going to have to make a space for it to happen. You're going to have to collapse this projection. <clears throat> Guess what forgiveness does? Is forgiveness about letting other people off the hook because pain or trauma is moving in you? Forget it. Never forgive anybody for anything. And many people say, oh, yeah, that's right. I have to forgive myself. Never forgive yourself for anything because you can't. It's not possible. What the Greeks taught us was to let other people off the hook. They taught us pardoning in place of forgiveness and totally bastardized the idea of forgiveness. Forgiveness is the tool with which you collapse perceptions based in hostility and fear and you leave a clean and open space within your mind for something based in active love to come forward. And when that happens, then what enters into and what fuels the human mind is this state of being that we are designed to function out of. And this physiological device becomes a home where love is incarnated and embodied and it fuels absolutely everything. So the key tool that's needed, if you recognize that your life has any given arenas, you know, it might be in the arena of relationships or money or or business or work or employers, employees, wh- whatever arena it's in, if you find yourself, your mind producing hostility and fear, your job, should you choose to accept it, is to weaken those frequencies of hostility and fear until they can no longer take over your perceptual system. Now, each of us has and an innate tendency to perceive life in a certain way. That's because we have generational patterns. Remember we talked about there's integrative energy, there's disintegrative energy. Interesting, in the Aramaic language, the word that describes disintegrative energy is sin. It's an interesting word in Aramaic. The word sin has nothing to do with some terrible, awful thing that you've done. The word sin in Aramaic is actually an archery term. When you picked up the bow and arrow and you fired at the bullseye and you missed the bullseye, the scorekeeper yelled sin. All it means is you're off the mark. That's all it means. And if I put an energy that's off the mark, some form of hostility or fear, into a cell I begin the degradation of that spell. Now let's go back to the Aramaic way where they informed us the wages of sin is death. Now I can remember being a kid and thinking, oh, God's going to get me for my sins. That's what I was what I always thought you're going to be punished for your sins. And here we live on the punishment planet. How common is that belief? What if, what if, we lived on a work planet where seven and a half billion people could not even conceive of punishment, let alone reach out in punishment. What if we had seven and a half people who simply functioned as love and punishment never entered their awareness in any way, shape, or form? How different would our world be? I'm offering a world view that that's possible and that's where we want to go with this work. So when they said the wages of sin is death, all they were saying is... If you put disintegrative energy on top of, disintegrative energy on top of, on top of, on top of, you're going to die. Your structure isn't going to be able to carry that burden. Literally, mind energy becoming flesh, that chemistry that we call it, that lands inside the cell, is going to create deterioration of the cell. You get enough cells deteriorating, you get an organ system failing, you get enough organ systems failing, and you die. Life can't be supported in a system that is filled with sin. And it's got no connotation of evil, bad, wrong, nasty. It's just, what quality of energy are you engaging in? And then you remember they said, the sins of the fathers will be passed, yea, unto three and four generations. Generations. This is straight out of scripture, and guess what? It's got nothing to do with religion. It's just the way the system works. It's interesting. I, I came across this morning some emails from a friend from several years ago, and I'd sent him some of the material in the Beatitudes and the, uh, the Kiboros manuscript, and he passed it on to a business a friend of his, business acquaintance. And I just read it this morning, and, and this fellow is Jewish, and he was putting forward some of Yeshua's ideas in Hermes these kinds of ideas and <laughs> this guy, <clears throat> this executive from a company he was working with uh, sent back, he says, what, you and you are talking about Jesus, I'm going to have to sit down and have a few shots of tequila before I read this because our world has been brainwashed that this is about religion and that's just another scam to keep people separated and finding somebody else at fault and not living as their true nature. What this man said is, this is what causes you to die. And you have generations of that in there. Who told you that literally, I mean, you go back four generations, and that's 31 lives. Who told you that you have every thought, every feeling, every reality structured within your structure, of the previous 30 people in your generations did anybody tell you that the thoughts the feelings the attitudes the perceptual constructs of mom and dad and mom and dad's mom and dad and their moms did anybody tell you that this book called scripture is not about theology here's where it's about genetics it's about physics it's about physiology it's about psychology it's about how this energy system called life works but the Greeks didn't want us to know that. You'll notice the Greeks, you know, they had these gods that raped their own mothers and murdered their own children. Pretty heavy-duty group of folks. So through that filter came this insane interpretation of something which just meant to help you to determine how to live your life. So if you've got generations of energies that are off the mark in there, you're in trouble. And, of course, you think about three to four generations and – where did the previous fourth the fourth generation back get their thoughts, their feelings, their realities, but from the previous generation and the previous? And so what this work ultimately is inviting you to do. And and I'll say that having developed this and worked with this for almost fifty years now, when people are first introduced to this, they get it on a certain level. But it isn't until people work with it for five to ten years that they really grasp what it's about, what it really means. And what we're inviting each of you to do is to develop a skill unheard of in our culture. And that is the skill of being able to delve inside of your own energy system to learn to collapse projections of untoward energies, move into and literally decode what's in the cell. Literally, that mind energy comes in, lands on a receptor site, is integrated into the cell. The skill is to pull that out of the cell and throw it away, that's forgiveness. And to be able to literally develop the skill they go down to the point where you literally are sensitive enough to the energies contained within your structure that you can go back into the generational patterns and pull the neuropeptides out of the genes that create that pattern that create this inclination that's activated in certain ways in your life. So we're inviting you to develop a set of skills. And it doesn't happen on day one or day two or day 10 or day 20. You know, I have people like, you know, oh, I got five bucks in five minutes. Tell me everything you know, Michael. No, that's not how it works. I use an example of that. And, and, and I say this by way of hopefully inspiring you to really take, I'm, I'm suggesting you do at least two worksheets a day in each assignment as they come as we go through this intensive. And, and if you do through the period of the 14 weeks, you'll integrate it into your life as a habit and it will become yours for life. It's one of the benefits of doing this intensive this way as opposed to people coming to Heartland for 16 days and and doing it all but then taking it back to their lives and trying to integrate it into their daily lives. It's a challenge. But ultimately what we're inviting you to do is to develop the skills of being able to go into the deepest parts of your structure, access what's there and what doesn't belong to literally be able to throw it away, to remove it. And what does that look like? What are we capable of? And I, I use an example. Michael J., my son, is a computer nerd. And when he was about 15, he decided he wanted to learn about computers. And I had a student friend in Kansas City who uh, was a former NASA computer scientist. And he's someone that I've worked with for several years. He'd, he'd done my work. And, and we, were just, we just became bugs over the years. And so I called Graham, and I said, hey, Michael J. wants to learn about computers, and I know you've got a computer school, aside from about four computer businesses. Can Michael come and work with you? He said, sure. And and Michael J., of course, was raised at Heartland. And thank you to Fran Tyner, because Fran was this the first two or three years that we were at Heartland. And Michael J. was, you know, I guess he was about eight or nine. And he became Fran's tail. He went everywhere Fran went. And Fran just had this ability to do anything with his hands. So Michael learned that skill from him. And so he ended up going and living at, uh, at Graham's, in Graham's home and doing kind of an exchange with him for room and board while he was going to school and studying computers. Actually, over a period of a couple of years, when, uh, when Michael J.'s stereo system left the house, we knew he'd gone to Kansas City, and that was it. But... I tell the story because uh, there was a point where I had bought a new computer. And when I got that computer up and running, got it online, you know, this is back when you pushed the button, it went beep, 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 all these tones, and you got this crawling thing that happened. Well, it didn't, it didn't work properly. So I called the company, and I don't know, I spent two, three, four, five hours on, on with technical support. They couldn't get the computer working. So I said, well, pack it up and send it back to us. We'll fix it. So I packed it up send sent it back. Two weeks later, I got the computer back. It's ostensibly fixed. I plug it in. Same problem. Exact same thing. So I got on the phone with the computer with tech support again, go through the whole routine. They can't get it working. So I don't bug Graham because he's a really busy guy. He's got three or four businesses. And so I picked up the phone. I called and said, Graham, I apologize for bugging you, but I got a problem. Can you help me? And so I explained what had happened, and, you know, I sent the computer back, and they couldn't fix it, and, you know, what do I do? It's a brand-new computer. And he says, okay, well, go to a C prompt. At that point, I was a little bit ignorant of computers. I said, what's a C prompt? And, uh, and I followed his directions. He said, well, put in a string of letters and hit a return. So I put in a string of letters hit a return. Read to me what it says, and I read it to him. And, and he says, okay, type in this string of characters and hit a return. Read to me what it says. So I put that in, hit a return. And I read it to him. He said, okay, your computer's fixed. What? Your computer's fixed. Oh, now, come on, Graham. I mean, I sent it back to them. We've spent hours on the phone. Michael, your computer's fixed. Guess what? My computer was fixed. Now, the company that built the system couldn't troubleshoot what Graham did, literally in three minutes on the phone. That's called having brain cells. something. Are there challenges in your life? Are there hostilities and fears that you can't seem to overcome? Are there disorders and diseases that just don't seem resolvable? Well, as I said, five to ten years of engaging. If you say, well, that's a long time. I don't know if I want to. Well, what else is there to do? There is no other path to this end result than doing your work. You know, in the ancient times, they wanted an instant fix too. Well, five bucks, five minutes. What did they say You can't strong the gates. gates. You can't do it. It takes doing your work. You have this body-mind unit. There are generations and generations and generations of untoward energies in there. And you've just got to clean it up. Now, I've spent the last half century studying how to do that, how it works, what that all means. And this is my end result. It's actually the thing that inspired me to take it to the next level. My son just turned 40 was his birth. And when he came into the world, it was just like so awesome and delivered and caught him with my hands. And it was just so amazing. And then I looked at the world at that time and it's like, well, if somebody doesn't do something, there isn't going to be a world for this little one to grow up in. And this is what I did. And so I invite you to be on the team and be part of the process and key into how this process of healing works, what it really means. And the core of the forgiveness process, we're not actually going to get into doing the worksheet tonight, but we're going to get into what the core of the forgiveness process is. And from there, you can tap into and, you know, you can go to our website or, pardon me, to your your phone's app store, And just type in the words heartland, H-E-A-R-T-L-A-N-D, one word, Aramaic, A-R-A-M-A-I-C, forgiveness. And you'll be looking at the world's, as far as I know, only forgiveness app. You can do the worksheet. There are two different versions of it on on your phone now once you download that. And or you can go to whyagain.org, and in the upper left-hand corner of the page, it says start here, click that button. It will walk you through literally 50 years of what it took to understand how this process of forgiveness works. And what I'm gonna explain to you right now, I didn't understand until I had worked with this for about 35 years. It took that to decode from the Aramaic and come to understand all of the aspects of how this comes together. The physiology, the physics, the psychology, the genetics of it, and how it all works. But suffice to say, in its shortest form at this moment, perception is the output of your mind. It's made of nine bits of data. If your perception is fueled by any form of hostility or fear, you have a problem because you are suffering from degraded perception. And your life will never go the way you want it to go while your perception is degraded. Underlying degraded perception is generations and generations and generations, pardon me, are generations of unresolved hostility and fear. The thing that drives this whole process, and and you'll notice in your life in general, I mean, unless you're just a, a, a naturally nasty person, excuse me, if your persona is that degraded that you're a naturally nasty person, you'll notice that as long as everybody's doing what you want them to do, you're a pretty happy camper. But when someone, yourself or someone else, is not fulfilling a goal that you hold for them, that's when you go into hostility and fear, degraded perception, and untoward behavior. Why? Why? How does all that work? Well, here's what happens. Obviously, if there are 10,000 brain cells firing, and this is the most quoted piece of psychological research, and was done back in the... 60s, if I remember correctly, this is the most quoted piece of research in in psychological history. Nine bits of data, 10,000 brain cells fired. Now, there's other research that's come up since then that says, no, it's 13, it's 12, it doesn't matter. The point is, we get to see a little tiny fragment of what's really going on within us. And obviously, Something has to determine which nine bits of data your mind is going to use to build your perception. Something has to make that determination. What is it? The driver for that whole process is your goals. When you load a goal in the mind through resonance, Everything associated with the frequency of that goal. Remember, everything is frequency. You know, I actually don't speak words. I've never spoken a word in my life and neither of you. We call it words, but actually, I have a little flap of skin in my throat and I know how to blow air over it so that it creates these things that we call words. But what's really happening is this air moving out causes air molecules to move. The air molecules moving cause a little drum inside of your ear to move and that drum moving sets up an electrical frequency and nothing is communicated by that except frequency no light no sound no nothing goes in there or here what goes in is frequency and then that frequency causes brain cells to fire and now your whole history including your whole genetic history through the last thousand generations is set into activity through the law of resonance, whatever that goal resonates in you is going to be the information that is recruited by that goal to produce the perception, which includes attitudes and your behaviors. If you don't like the behavior that you're doing, you know, we hear about the alcoholic that got drunk and did crazy stuff. And the next morning when they wake up, they are so repentant. Oh, that's so terrible. I will never do that again. And they really mean they're never going to do it again. But guess what? Next time they get drunk, they'll do it again. Remember we talked about inhibitors earlier? What's the first thing that happens with alcohol. Because of amounts of alcohol, knock out inhibitors. And now all the generational patterns that were never allowed, they were always shut down, they were always inhibited, will come into play and people do crazy stuff and much as they feel sorry the next morning and swear they're never gonna do it, unless they go in and clean up these generational patterns, they're gonna do it the next time the circumstance warrants it, warrants it. And so goals are the driver for this process of billions of bits of information moving in the world, billions of bits moving in us, and nine bits end up producing the world we experience the thoughts we think, the feelings we feel, and the energy we engage in. And this process is designed to be fueled by active, present love. That's the power supply that it's designed to work with. Now, does anybody have a, a device in your home, your office, your shop, your car, your business that works really well when you unplug it? No. Human perception is designed to be fueled by human life. It's designed to be fueled by active, present love. If your perception is fueled by hostility or fear, then you're not even human. Just because one has a human form does not mean they are human. Remember holding the newborn? Go back and hold that newborn child. Notice when you hold the newborn, what serenity, what peace, what sweetness, what the presence of love is like. Then ask yourself a question. Is the newborn loving me, or is the newborn love? My offering is, the newborn is the active presence of love, and so are you. If the active presence of love isn't active in your physiology, then there's no human life because it is love that is human life. Remember Yeshua said, I come to bring you life? You look at this whole body of work and the whole thing is about how do you get rid of the or fear and how do you fuel your mind by the active presence of love? Now it's a two-part process. One part of the process is the dissolution of the generational patterns that do not belong. That's called forgiveness. Forget about ever forgiving anybody ever again. And, and it always amazes me because I've had people who have been around my work 10, 15, 20 years, and they'll still talk about how well I forgave them. Stop. Never forgive anybody for anything. If you choose to pardon someone... You know, they did something crazy, and you go, I can't let that go. I'm going to let it go. I'll pardon you. I'll let you off the hook for that. That's done. But if you call that forgiveness, you won't actually do the next level, which is go inside yourself and remove and clean up the untoward energies that never belong within a human structure. So forgiveness is about the removal of what never belonged. That's half of the process. And the other half of the process is the integration of active love into every cell, To literally create a space in this form where love actively shows up in physiology. Now, the short form of the forgiveness process, and again, please use the radio show, ask questions. The short form of the forgiveness process is, the word forgive in Aramaic is Shabag. And it literally translates from Aramaic to cancel. Now what is it that I cancel? Do I cancel you? Well, that's murder. Probably not gonna be. Do I cancel myself? Well, no, that's suicide. Let's let that one go. But what in every circumstance where I have upset or discernment's going on, that means there's an untoward energy moving in my physiology. If I'm going to come out of my denial, what is it that I can cancel to change that whole process? When I cancel my goal, the perception generated as a result of that goal collapses. When it collapses, I now have a clean and open space within my mind where these underlying energies can surface. Because when I cancel a goal and collapse a perception, what happens is a pathway is open into the unconscious or the dissociated content. And what I've dissociated from, depending on my level of willingness What I've dissociated from will start to come upward to awareness. Now, when I say awareness, it might just be awareness of the energy moving, and it might be specific memories of things that have happened. It's not necessary to go back and remember each dark, dirty, nasty thing that happened in your life. And it's not about laying on the couch and, you know, examining what happened for 30 years until you find that thing. It's about living in and as the active presence of love, making a commitment to that. And as you walk through life, the next piece of work you're ready to do, resonance will bring somebody to you that will resonate what you need to deal with. If you keep it hidden, then you'll only get this surface projection and you'll think it's somebody else. When you cancel the goal, you collapse that perception. It took me 35 years to learn this piece of information. When, and, I, and I understand why the Greeks turned it into pardoning, letting other people off the hook. I understand it fully, because until you've got all these pieces, you know the physics, you know the physiology, you know the high energy, until you put all those pieces together, canceling a perfectly good goal does not make any sense at all. Gee, I just want that person to cherish me. And they're raging at me. Why would I cancel my need to be cherished? Because I'm in terror? Oh, so my physiology is producing terror because I want to be cherished. Oh, so Michael, what you're saying is what what you now understand about me is that in my file on being cherished, there's terror. Oh, okay, I see. So if I cancel my goal for them to cherish me my projection on them collapses and it opens a pathway into all this terror that's stored within my brain cell structure and maybe the terror that's stored from 30 generations ago that needs to be unwound. Oh, now I'm just trying to see what forgiveness is as I cancel the goal. Now, I have a 9-bit processor, so we're going to call it for the sake of whatever term we're going to use. If I've got something that's been going on in my bloodline for 25 or 200 generations, and I can process nine bits at a time, what chance do I have? It's impossible. I mean, it's silly to even try. Fortunately, this man, Yeshua, understood another major piece of information, and that was that at creation, there was a power put in us that in Aramaic was called ruka de The Greeks translated these words as the Holy Spirit. There's nothing about a disembodied spirit being in the term ruka de in Aramaic. In Aramaic, those terms speak of a feminine elemental force in us that undoes the effects of our errors and teaches us the truth. So when i become willing enough i will literally i mean one of my best examples for i don't know 35 years or more if you were in my workshop 35 years or well 15 years ago these weren't the words at the top of the board this word was suppressed literally As I'm sitting and I'm making some changes to the worksheet, the one you see on the, the website now or in the app is probably at least version 3020. I was sitting doing some work with it, and literally I'm told inside my head, Michael, it's not suppression. That's not clear enough. It's dissociation. What do you mean dissociation? It's not just that you've hidden it away. It's that it's no longer yours. It's gone. You can't change it. When you understand that denial, thinking or speaking as though something outside of you is the because of this that's in you, then you have to, to believe that, hide the real process that's happening inside of you. This genius, genius, I mean, how did he come up with this? I don't know. But here's what he showed us. Cancel the goal. Collapse of perception. Perception drops in on its root. You've now got access to the hidden part of your mind. Bring it forward in the presence of love. And then there's a super processor that is available to you. In Aramaic, it was called Rokka Kudsha. She, a feminine elemental force in us, that undoes the effects of our errors and teaches us the truth. So at the point where I cancel the goal and collapse, I may open so much that I'm so overwhelmed. This is part of the whole flood idea. You know, I'm so overwhelmed. This is just so much to move. How do I do it? I connect with Rokka. What is Rokka? In the original Aramaic they never said anything about God sending out his spirit. What it says is the creator sent out the breath. We have access to this phenomenal, Super processor call for a good to you. She will, if you invite her to, undo the effects of your errors and teach you the truth. Now, if you've still got a use for one in your lives, well, I just want to keep this little bit of hostility back here so I do need to protect myself, then she's not going to touch your hostility. It's yours. Hang out with it all you need, all you want. But when you really just surrender, when you're ready to really let it all go, she will process you right down to your genetic toes. Every day,